Tonight we're going to be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And uh, Paul wrote this letter from the city of Corinth, same place that he wrote 1 Thessalonians from. But he, he wrote this one a short time after he wrote 1 Thessalonians. And uh, he, he and his companions, uh, Timothy and Silas, they had visited Thessalonica on Paul's second missionary journey. And they established the church there. But if you remember, Paul had to leave suddenly because of persecution and that, that, that prompted him to write his first letter to the Thessalonians, which contains words of comfort and encouragement. And Paul now, he, he heard that the Thessalonians had responded to the first letter, how they had responded, and, and the, the situation in Thessalonica. This is the only way I can describe it. That things after his first letter, the situation got better and worse at the same time. And what I mean by that is the good news is that they were growing in their faith and that they, they had this, this visible love that was going on. But the bad news was that the persecution that they were suffering grew even more intense. And, and then there also there was the false teachings about Christ's return continued to spread. And, and, uh, and again, the same kind of situation that in First Thessalonians, that there were many who had quit their jobs to try to just wait for the end of the world. So Paul wrote, to the Thessalonians a second time, and and uh, and he wanted to bring them peace and hope. In fact, one writer, I, I uh, uh, commentator, said that uh, that in in their view that the whole structure of the letter was designed to give peace because it starts with peace and ends with peace, and then talks about these uh, other issues in the middle that that how God brings us peace in the middle of it. So let's just dive right in to verse one, and we're gonna we're gonna go through verses, verse five tonight, one through five. Um, and we're going to talk about a few issues at the beginning, but then the, the main part of our time tonight, I want to talk about, I want to try to answer the question, is there a purpose in pain? Because Paul talks a lot about uh, suffering and persecution in this passage. So let's read it together. We'll just read verse one. It says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll stop there. The second letter um, to the church in Thessalonica begins very much like the first letter. Uh, so what I want to do is just what we read there. I just want to do a quick refresher because it's been a while since we talked about any of the, the background of these things. So uh, let's just do a quick refresher, refresher on these men, the city, and the church. So who were these men that, that are mentioned here? Paul, course we know him he was the head of the missionary team that had brought the gospel to the city and he was a well-educated jew he had started out persecuting christians and ended up ended up being caught by jesus he literally talks about um, in philippians he talks about he talks about taking hold of, of that for which christ jesus took hold of him and that phrase took hold of it's it's a word that literally means to grab hold and pull down and I always hear that and I think to myself as a football fan, that's a tackle uh, to grab hold and pull down. And so Jesus tackled Paul on the way to Damascus and changed his life. And, and God had chosen Paul to take the gospel message to the Gentiles. So Paul took three missionary journeys across much of the Roman Empire, sharing the gospel and planting churches everywhere he went. Then there's Silas. Silas, who's also in scripture known as Silvanus, the same person. He was called a prophet in scripture. He was highly regarded in the Jerusalem church. 
In fact, uh, he was on the team that delivered the decision from the Jerusalem Council to the church in Antioch regarding the circumcision of Gentiles and the Christian faith because there were some Jewish believers who said, listen, if they're going to get saved, this is a this is salvations of the Jews. They've got to become, they've got to convert to Judaism. They've got to get circumcised if they're going to get saved. But the church council looked at the whole issue and said, no, no, they don't have to because, because if you do that, then you're saying you have to follow a law to get saved. And this is about grace. And so as a Gentile, I'm very grateful that they said they came to that conclusion. So then the third man, Timothy, after Paul and Barnabas parted ways following a disagreement, uh, Paul chose Silas uh, to accompany him on his second missionary journey. And Paul and Barnabas, on their first journey, they met a young man named Timothy in the city of Lystra uh, during, during that journey. And, and then when Paul and Silas returned to that city to check on the church during the second trip, uh, the second missionary journey of Paul, they then found Timothy and he had a good reputation and he had grown in the faith. And so they invited Timothy to join them. And Timothy became a, a, a great, a massive help to Paul. Um, uh, not, and he not only traveled with Paul, but he sometimes would, would go out as Paul's emissary. That's how much Paul trusted him. He said, you go as my representative. And at times, uh, you know, Timothy would go out, go out to check on the status and the progress of churches. But there are other times when they would plant a church and Paul would move on and he to, to other places to preach the gospel. But Timothy would actually stay in that city to continue teaching and get the church established. So all three of these men at this point in time were in the city of Corinth. And uh, we know from the previous studies a few months earlier, Timothy had gone back to Thessalonica to check on the believers there, and he had returned to Paul with the good news about their faith. Because remember, Paul got kicked out because of persecution, and things didn't get any better for the church after he left. So Paul, being not having a lot of time there to get the church established the way he wanted to, he was very concerned that the persecution was going to drive the, the people in the church away from Christ. Timothy went on this trip. He come, came back and told them, no, they're doing great. And Paul was so excited. And so he wrote the first letter of the Thessalonians because Timothy said, they're doing great, but here's some of the things that are happening. Here's some of the questions they have. So Paul, Paul wrote this letter in response to that. Now, what about the city? Thessalonica was the capital of the, uh, and it was the largest city in the Roman province of Macedonia, which would be kind of like Northern Greece for us today. And the, uh, the most important Roman highway that went from Rome all the way into uh, the kind of Central Asia, not really Central Asia, be northern, more like uh, the eastern edges of Turkey, somewhere in there. Uh, that went right through Thessalonica. And so that highway, combined with the fact that Thessalonica had a very busy seaport, it made it one of the wealthiest and most flourishing trade centers in the Roman Empire. And so... Uh, then what about the church in Thessalonica? The church had been planted when Paul and his companions visited Thessalonica on the second journey that they made. And the Thessalonians had a strong faith. And we're going to see more about that tonight. But here, here's the thing. Whenever, whenever God encroaches on enemy territory, the enemy fights back and he does so relentlessly. I, I can tell you, you can see this 
If, you, if you're praying for somebody to get saved, when they get saved, I guarantee the enemy will attack and try to, try to lure that person away from Christ. It happens all the time. Um, Satan was working tire, tirelessly to extinguish the church, uh, the work of Christ in Thessalonica. He, so when Paul was there, he stirred up this angry mob who, who forced Paul and his companions to hastily, hastily leave the city. But, but the enemy was not content to merely set, uh, to see Paul depart from Thessalonica, but he desired, desired to destroy the church that Paul, Silas, and Timothy left behind. Yet even under the, the incessant pressure and the intense pain of persecution, the Thessalonians' faith held strong. So, verse 2. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul would often begin his letters with a greeting of grace and peace. And those two are, it's such a beautiful, how some of these uh, biblical, beautiful words fit together. Because grace is God's unmerited favor. It's God's gift, which grants you the privilege to have a relationship with him. It's what he does. It's what he offers us. And peace is a result of that relationship. So when he says, I want you to have God's grace and God's peace, it means I want you to experience the relationship that he has for you, that he's offering to you by grace. And when you enter that relationship, you're going to find peace. And he refers to God as father, but implied here, but also actually explicitly stated in the first verse, he, he, he mentions, he talks about the fact that he's our father. Uh, he, he's, he's not just the father of, you know, uh, in the Godhead. He's not just the, Paul's father. He's not just the father of the Jewish believers, but he presented God as the father of all believers, shown by his sovereignty, uh, his sovereign authority, and, and his loving care for all his children. And, and here's the thing if God is the father of all believers, then all Christians form the family of God. And, and that means that Christians must treat each other as brothers and sisters. Now, the reason I mention that, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, is that some people like to point to the way brothers and sisters fight and squabble with one another, and they like to use that to excuse, you know, when they have so discord among the body of believers. But, but here's the thing I, I, I say, uh, you know, my brothers and I, not so much my sister and I, and, and I, because there was a lot of space between us, a lot of a number of years. But my brothers and I, when we were growing up, uh, we had our disagreements. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I mean, we didn't just argue. I mean, it, it, there were times when I was always a lot smaller than my older brother. He was a kind of a big guy, and I was always little scrawny just as scrawny as could be but i was faster and so i would rely i would taunt him and then and then run from him because i knew he couldn't catch me but once in a while i'd get cornered and then i knew i was in real trouble you know and but but we had we would fight one another when we were kids and i mean am i the only one anybody here ever have fights with your siblings okay i'm glad to know that we're all normal here but but here's the thing as we matured as in, and by the way, getting older is not the same as maturing. <laughs> as we matured, we began to appreciate one another much more and we stopped fighting with one another. That didn't mean that we, that doesn't mean that we always agree on everything. 
but we don't fight one another anymore. What that, I think there's a principle there in that, that teaches us that our ability to get along with the family of God is usually a very strong indicator of our level of maturity as a Christian. If somebody says, man, you know, if they can't get along, if they can't find a church because everywhere they go, they're, there's problems and there's, uh, and they're upset and they're angry and they're, you know, uh, offended by something else or whatever it is. If they can't get along, that says a lot more about their level of maturity than it does about anything going on at the church. Um, be, because if, if, if I mature in Christ, I'm going to be able to deal with whatever, whatever happens, whatever disagreement we have. And we're, we're going to be talking a little bit about that on, on Sunday. Uh, but we need to have relationships that are deep enough to be able to sustain conflict. And some people aren't mature enough to have that. So let's move on to verse 3, and we're going to move on into some things that I want to spend most of our time on. But as we read verse 3, interesting thing here about verses 3 through 10 uh, is that, is that th those verses in the original Greek, verses 3 through 10, is actually one long sentence. So, you know, that's, that's Paul, classic Paul. He like, loves these long senten sentences. Now, now, since that would be very difficult for us to read, and it would be almost impossible to comment on, English translators have broken it into two paragraphs of seven separate sentences. And, and that's really an accurate, a very accurate division based on the flow of the, of the chapter and the topic, topics covered in each paragraph. So, just to just nothing, neither here nor there, just interesting that when you read verses three through 10 to realize that all of that is one sentence. Next time you read through all of that together, think that, think about that and just imagine trying to read that as one sentence. But let's look at verse three. Paul says this, we ought always to thank God for you brothers and rightly so because your faith is growing more and more and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. So two couple things here. The first one, he says, their faith was flourishing. And, and the verb flourishing there, uh, it, it emphasizes healthy and prolific growth. Uh, in other words, they're not just growing a little bit. They're growing a lot. And, uh, and the, the word translated flourishing, uh, it actually only appears here in all of the New Testament. There are places where uh, part of the word appears where, where it talks about, in fact, in Corinthians, he uses uh, the, the word here. Let me try to explain. I can't remember the exact Greek word, but there are certain prefixes or suffixes, you know, that can be added. And we have the same thing in English uh, that that will change a word or change the intensity of a word. So the Greek word there means to grow. But he puts the the prefix in Greek of hyper, which really it's kind of we sort of do the same thing in English with the same. T it's where it comes from, and so he, he and this is the only place where he does that with the with the talking about growth, and so the NIV translates it as growing more and more, which is mostly right. But the compound verb here that where he adds hyper to it. Uh, uh, emphasizes the type of growth that is happening, that it's vigorous growth. It's almost like on in overdrive, that they're just growing like crazy or like, like we would say about our kids. You ever, you ever heard somebody say, man, your kids are just growing like weeds. That, that's how the Thessalonians spiritually, they were growing like weeds. And, 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 you know, sometimes people think of faith as something that we, 
that's static that we acquire and we defend. And it's like, well, I have my faith in the Lord. But Paul, what Paul describes here is different because it's something that increases as we grow in the Lord. As, and as faith increases, it leads to greater commitments to Christianity's belief and practices and a greater trust in the Lord. And, and, and that is apparently what was happening in Thessalonica. But what's significant here is that this was taking place in the face of severe suffering. And, and, and he goes on and he says, not only was their faith flourishing, but their flourishing faith was producing an increasing love. James wrote this, and I think this is very much related. He said, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and, and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by what I do. So James uh, words, he, he provide the criterion by which genuine faith is measured. How can you tell if your faith or anyone else's faith is genuine? Here it is. Genuine faith will always produce genuine works. Now, it's very important to get the order correct because some people will try to say, well, I'm going to work my way to salvation. But that's not what James teaches. Some people say that there is a conflict between Paul and James because Paul says we're, that we're not saved by works. Well, we got to understand there's no conflict because James does not say we're saved by works. James says, if we are saved by faith, through grace, by the grace of God, through faith, then there will be works. James is talking about the result of that salvation Faith produces something visible. Uh, and one of the things it produces is a visible love. Jesus said in John 13, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love, uh, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And in that statement, Jesus reveals how faith and love actually work together. Faith is our response to Jesus' invitation to be his disciple. And love is the proof that our faith is real. Faith requires that we look up and see him for who he is. And love requires that we, that we look around and see others for who they are. What do I mean by that? I mean that I look around and I see that other people are made in the image of God. That, that he loves them, that he died for them, that he wants to save them. And so, so if I have faith in, in the God that I, that I claim to love, then that's going to translate into a love for other people around me. And in describing their vigorously growing faith and ever-increasing love for one another, one another Paul, what's, what's, I think it's significant that he uses present tense verbs. That is, that their increasing faith and, and trust excuse me, increasing faith and love is an ongoing process. See, one of the things we know, Paul had prayed that the Thessalonians' faith would deepen and their love would grow and overflow. L listen to what he wrote in 1 Thessalonians. 
verse three, or excuse me, chapter three, verse 10. Night and day, we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. He wants their faith to grow. Verse 12, the same chapter. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. And then chapter four, verse 10. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. So he's been praying that their faith would grow, that their love would increase. And now in this verse, he acknowledges that his prayers have been answered, but he doesn't announce that they have reached the goal. That's that, that present tense, that this is something that is that God has done, but that God is also still doing. It's also significant, by the way, uh, I didn't, I didn't uh, mention this, but when he said, I feel uh, obligated to give thanks to you, what, what he's saying is there, he's saying, you, these things are happening. You're growing in faith. Your love is ever increasing. But I, and so I thank God for that because what that does is it's saying, you didn't do this, Thessalonians. It wasn't that you buckled down and you made this happen. This is the work of God in your life. So I thank God for what's happening in you. And that's, that's a great way to keep the focus on God and yet encourage somebody else. You know, uh, like, like God's done tremendous things in, in, things in Sam's life over the last year or so. Well, even longer than that, but the last year has been phenomenal. Well, you know, if I go to Sam and I say, man, Sam, you did a great job this past year. Well, now all I'm going to do is puff up his pride, you know, and he's going to, and, and the focus is going to be in the wrong place. But if I go to him and say, Sam, I thank God for what, what he has done in your life. Now I'm encouraging him because I say, I see progress. I see God doing something. You're not who you used to be, but the glory goes to God for it. It's a, it's a great, great way to approach those sort of things. So this is an ongoing process and there's no point, at least in this lifetime, at which any of us can announce that we have reached the limits of the faith and love that God requires of all of us. So verse four, therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. Now, in verse three, Paul commends the believer's faith and love. And here he commends their hope as he speaks of, the, of their endurance. Uh, a genuine faith, not only will it produce love, but a genuine faith will, will, will produce even more than an external love for others. It will also produce an internal hope and trust in God. In 1 Thessalonians 1.3, Paul referred to the believer's endurance as being inspired by hope. He said, we continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The person who has a, has a genuine faith in God will we'll view affliction and suffering through the lens of an enduring hope. And it's, and it's not the kind of endurance that waits and then thanks God when the trial passes. But it's the kind of endurance that thanks God even if the trial does not pass. That's the kind of thing he's talking about. The, the, the very sobering reality of the Christian faith is that the possibility exists that God will, will not allow your trials to pass in this lifetime. I mean, think about it. There are tens of thousands, I will say there are millions of Christians all over the world who live under the incessant daily pressure and trials 
uh, of trials and persecution. And, and, and the same was true of the Thessalonian Christians. For them, trials were more than just a bad day at work. And persecution was more than just a passing insult from a friend or a co-worker or something. Consequential, real, uh, significant persecution and trials were an absolute way of life for them. And their endurance proved that their hope was strong and secure. Why would they endure it? Because they, they said, we have hope that even if I suffer persecution and, and, uh, and, and trials the rest of my life, I have hope that goes beyond this life. I have hope that goes beyond this. So that, that's the, that anchor that it becomes. Uh, and, and you know what? Listen, if we're, if we're going to be honest, God may have the same kind of life in store for us. We may, we may go through things and we may not see, uh, uh, you know, deliverance per se from, uh, from hardship. But the question is, <clears throat> do we have the kind of hope that will endure? Am I going to hold on to Jesus no matter what? You know, <clears throat> obstacles. Obstacles are things that, that block our pathway. They, they frustrate our plans. They, they make our lives difficult. Uh, but you know, sometimes, first of all, God sometimes places obstacles in our path to, to accomplish his purpose in us. Sometimes it's a physical thing. Sometimes it's like Paul, when he, he wanted to go into Asia with the gospel, but the Holy Spirit stopped him from going, said, no, I don't want you to go that way. He put an obstacle in a way in his way there. But, but here's the thing about it. If we trust his sovereignty, if we trust that God is truly in control, if we trust that He is a good God, that He's He's going to that He is going to work on our behalf, if we trust in His sovereignty, we will view the things that happen to us not as obstacles that keep us from getting what we want, but we'll see them as opportunities to depend more desperately on God to meet our needs. We'll see them as opportunities for for God to show His strength and His power in our lives. And it's not about us. It's not about me getting what I want. It's about God being glorified in my life. Hardship, trials, and persecution will reveal the genuineness of your, of your faith and, and the true depth of your, of, of your faith. Trying times and adverse circumstances will draw the truly uh, converted person to God instead of driving away, away from God. James, James said this, and I don't know if, he, if you remember this verse, but it's one that's like, you ever read a verse and you're like, Lord, why'd you have to put that one in there? Well, he said, James said, you should consider it great joy when you face hardships and trials. I, I, that's one of those verses for me because I'm like, really? Great joy? Why? James said we should consider it great joy or consider it pure joy because it's through those things that, that it brings forth the fruit of endurance. It brings forth maturity in my life and it leads me to the ultimate happiness of being in his presence. We can live with an expectant hope because our trials are working for us and not against us. Paul gives us the perspective that we need for facing trials in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is what he wrote. Therefore, we do not lose heart. It's already a great, great passage. Therefore, we do not lose heart. 
Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And I'm always shocked when I read Paul writing that, when he says, our light and momentary troubles, knowing the stuff Paul went through. You know what I mean? I mean, he was stoned, he was beaten, he was thrown into prison, he was shipwrecked, he he was bitten by a poisonous snake. I mean, he was, anything dealing with a snake, that's a bad thing to me right there. But he went through all of these horrible, horrible things, and he says, ah, light and momentary. Why, Why would he say that? He said, because I see a future glory. I see something beyond that, that, that is is so much beyond, so much greater than any of these things that no matter what I have to go through here to get there, it's worth it. He goes on to verse 18. He says, well, for our light and momentary troubles, verse 17, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. That's the attitude we have to look at. We have to say, hey, I don't care what happens in this life. I have a hope that goes beyond this life. And the glory of that life is so much greater than anything I have to suffer in this broken world. That I, that I, and it helps me hang on to that hope. Now, Paul said that he... He said that he boasted to other churches about the Thessalonians' endurance and faithfulness. Now, that's kind of funny to me because we think of boasting in a negative sense. Uh, And the Bible, when you're talking about boasting about yourself, does speak of it that way. However, the Bible also says, if you're going to boast, let your boast be in the Lord. So it's okay to boast about God. And that's what he's doing. He's boasting about what God's doing in the Thessalonians, this was not like, why can't you be more like your brother? You know, I hope nobody's ever done that to you when you're growing up. But it was more of a reminder to the other believers that if God could see the Thessalonians through that kind of stuff, then surely he's going to see you through anything you're dealing with. Because the, the language that Paul uses here, it, it seems to indicate because persecution was not abnormal in the early church in the, in the day of Paul. It was, it was pretty typical in, the, in their culture to suffer some measure of persecution. But the language Paul uses in this passage seems to indicate that what the Thessalonians were going through just was a, a notch above. It was worse than what other churches and other believers were dealing with. And, he, he, and so that's why he'd say, Listen, look at what God's doing in the Thessalonians. You know the kind of suffering they're dealing with. And look at what's happening. They're still growing. They're loving one another. God's doing great things. And if he's going to do that there, you know he loves you just as much. So he's going to see you through it. That's kind of the idea here. Um, And then the word translated perseverance here. It does not mean passive acceptance in the face of difficulty. That's what some of us think. Well, I'm just going to hold on. I'm going to persevere. I'm just going to hold on. But that's not what this word means. It, it, is, it describes an active strength against the, the, the difficulty exhibited by faithfulness. So it's more of a proactive saying. I'm not just, it's not just saying, I'm going to hold on. It's more like saying, I'm going to keep going. Do you see the difference? 
And that's the perseverance he's talking about. And, and maybe after understanding some of these things, we can begin to get a better picture as to why Paul was willing to boast about the Thessalonians among the, the churches. Their, their growing faith and increasing love. It did not happen in a sterile environment. On the contrary, what we know is that Satan was throwing everything, including the kitchen sink, at them. A storm of persecution had settled in and it showed little sign of letting up. They had, there was no end in sight. In fact, that's why we're going to get to it a little bit later. That's why they were still struggling, thinking maybe they had missed the return of Christ and they were suffering through the judgment because of the suffering was so severe. But, but rather than being blown away by the storm, they had remained firmly anchored to the unshakable foundation of their hope and faith. And Paul said, that's God. While waiting for God's kingdom, believers can and should learn endurance and faithfulness from their suffering. Now, here's the thing. I want to talk just for a few minutes about a theology of suffering. Because, you know, in our church in the West, you hear there are lots of people that want to teach about, you know, all the good things God has for you and all the wonderful life that you can have. But here's what we know, and, and I think everybody here gets this is that we as Christians are not exempt from suffering and pain. But too often in the pulpits in the churches in America, we don't ever talk about what do we do when, they're, when we're dealing with it? Why is this happening? And that's leading to the question, is there a purpose in the pain? Is God doing something? Is, is there something that he's trying to accomplish in this? So I think I want to go very briefly. We don't have time. We could, we could probably teach on this for weeks at a time. Uh, we're not going to do that, though, at least not right now. But I want to, I want to just give you a brief uh, uh, framework for a theology of suffering in the New Testament. The first thing I want you to understand, and this is really important because there's still some people that will hang on to this, but it is, it is, uh, this is so important to get and, and that is that suffering is not always the result of sin. Now, it can be. You can bring uh, suffering on yourself when you sin. But we need to know, because there are people out there that will still say, this is, this is a lot of what happens. We're, if you're in, on the same reading plan as I am in, a, in the Bible, uh, you, you're, you're, you're probably you're reading about Job right now. And all of his, his counselors, his quote-unquote friends, they're trying to say, the reason you're suffering, Job, is because there's obviously some hidden sin. But suffering is not always a result of sin. John chapter 9. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, speaking to Jesus, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? In fact, that tells us right there, and we, we do know the Jewish people, that they had had uh, rabbis teach that a child could actually sin while it was still in the womb. Um, and so that's why they would ask a question like that, because if he was born blind, you know, how did he sin before that? But this is what Jesus said. It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. So sometimes... Things happen not because you did something wrong, not because there's sin in your life, but God allows that in because he is going to then put his power on display in you. This is exactly what happened with Lazarus. 
Jesus heard about Lazarus being sick to the point of death before he ever passed away, right? And yet the Bible says he stayed for a couple more days. And then he finally, when it was time to go to Lazarus, he told his disciples, come, we must go to Lazarus because he sleeps. And the disciples are like, well, Lord, if he's sleeping, we should just leave him alone. Let's not wake him up. Really, we know that they were afraid to go back to that city because they were, they were, they had been threatened while they were there and they were going to be arrested and have suffered persecution. But they're like, oh, if he sleeps, let's just leave him alone. And Jesus then spoke plainly and said, no, you don't get it. He's dead. Come on, let's go. I don't know what the disciples thought at that point in time. It was like, well, if he's dead, why are we going? But you, we, I'm not going to go into the whole story, but you remember they get there, you know, the Lazarus sisters both say basically the same thing. The Lord, if you'd been here, he, he wouldn't have died. And he said, and he said, no, uh, uh, you don't understand. He's not going to be raised at the resurrection. He's going to be raised because I am the resurrection. And, but he says to them, he says, uh, and even in his prayer, he says, Now, Lord, I know that you always hear me, but now do this so that everyone here will know that, you're, that, you're, that you answer this prayer. We'll see your hand at work. That's exactly the same thing. The reason Jesus tarried, the reason he waited before he went to Lazarus was because he wanted those people to see what God could really do. They had already seen healing. They, they'd already seen that. They knew God can do that. But they hadn't seen a resurrection. And Jesus wanted them to see that. Anyway, suffering is not always a result of sin. Here's the second thing. God uses suffering to develop spiritual strength and enduring, endurance in us. Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. We can re rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance and endurance develops strength of character, and strength of character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because He has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with His love. So he's saying, it's just like, you know, you can't tell now, but I used to work out a lot. I used to be in really good shape and, and uh, go in the gym. And the thing about working out with weights is, is that you don't get stronger by, by going lighter. You get stronger by carrying and by using heavier and heavier weights. And it's the same thing in our spiritual life. When you're a baby Christian, you're probably, it's going to be a lot more difficult for you to bear up under some, some extreme circumstances, you know, outside of the grace of God. He'll give you the grace you need when you need it. But as you grow stronger, you, you deal oftentimes with greater and greater uh, difficulties, but you, you deal with them in a way that it strengthens your spirit because every time you, you walk through something and God brings you to a place of victory, the next time you walk through something that's even worse, you say, yeah, but God did that, so I know he'll do this. This is, this is like uh, David with Goliath when he went to Saul and Saul said, David, you, you can't fight this giant. Look at him. He's a giant and he's a warrior. Look at you. You're a little scrawny, good looking young boy. You're just a shepherd. You can't do this. But what did David say? He said, wait a minute. You don't understand, Saul. When I was guarding my father's sheep, one day a lion came up and he, and he, and he grabbed one of the lambs 
and, and, and he makes it very clear that this was God doing this through him. He said, and God enabled me to grab hold of the lion's mane and beat him to death till he get let go of the lamb. And he said the same thing. A bear came and God gave me the strength to kill the bear with my bare hands. And then he said, if God could hand that lion and that bear to me, which frankly, Goliath would be a more frightening ordeal because this is a fighting man with weapons. He said, if God can do those things, then this giant's not a, it's no big deal. So as you go through things and you, and you come out on the other side, it strengthens your faith and it helps you, it helps uh, you in your hope to continue and learn, uh, learn endurance. Here's number three. Problems help us trust in God's sovereign purposes for our lives. Uh, Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. He does not say God causes all things to happen. He does not say God causes bad things to happen. He says that no matter what happens, it, it, God will take those circumstances and he will cause them to work together to fulfill his purpose in you. This is what we see in the life of Joseph. When his brothers are, and Joseph are finally reconciled in, in Egypt, they're afraid. But what did Joseph say? He said, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. He said, you thought you were doing this terrible thing. You thought you were attacking me, getting rid of me, but actually looking back now, I can see that God was at work in this. He was working to get me where I am now because if I had stayed where I was, I could never have been where I am now. And he had to walk through a lot of suffering to ever get there. Number four, this is a big one. Suffering enables us to comfort others. Suffering enables us to comfort others. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 5. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. It's very simple. Um, a few years ago, my dad passed away. I'm not going to say we lost my dad because if something's lost, you don't know where it is. I know where my dad is. My dad passed away. You know what? I have a different um, understanding, a different rapport, a different empathy for someone when they lose their dad. I've walked through that, and so I can share how God comforted and strengthened me. And I can do that in a, in a way that I could not do before that event. Does that make sense? So when we receive comfort from the Lord, the, the, when we walk through it, it helps us to be able to share Christ's comfort with other people. Um, the, the next one, number five, we're not going to, I won't elaborate on this because we already kind of talked about it, but our eternal reward outweighs our suffering. So we got to remember that in the middle of our suffering. This is part of the hope. 
2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles that we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things that we see now will soon be gone and the things we cannot see will last forever. Number six, trials help train us to be more faithful. Another way to say this is, is that trials uh, can be a part of God's discipline. You know, when, when you as a parent are training your children, um, part of that training includes discipline, right? So if you're training your child to not lie, to tell the truth, if there's no discipline when they lie, they're not going to learn anything, right? But Hebrews 12, 11 says, no discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. Ain't that the truth? It is painful. But afterward, there will be a quiet harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So when, the, again, you know, not all suffering is due to sin, but sometimes if our attitude is wrong, when, if we need to be corrected, God will allow suffering or pain to enter our life because there are times when he will use that to discipline us to correct us because we're maybe drifting a little bit. Number seven, problems help us mature. We, we, we talked about this earlier. Uh, I didn't read the verse, but, uh, but, but we'll read it now. For James chapter one, verses two through four. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. And that word translated perfect literally means mature. It's through that process that it matures us. Part of the maturity, I think, is coming because when we walk through those trials and difficulties, we begin to understand what really matters. Isn't that right? And that's, just, that's, a, that's an act of maturity. That's a process, that's a fruit of maturity is a better way to say it. And then number eight, when we suffer, we share in the suffering of Christ. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 14. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. If you are insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you will be blessed for the glorious spirit of God rests upon you. All right, so let's read verse five. I wanna, I'm going to run out of time. All of this evidence that God's judgment is right. Oh, excuse me. All of this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. So how is the, the, uh, the Thessalonian suffering and faithfulness in persecution and, and, and suffering, how is their, their endurance, I should say, in faithfulness and persecution and suffering evidence that God's judgment is right? Well, the, the word judgment here should be understood as God's righteous decision to allow suffering in this world to sanctify his people. God has chosen to build his people's character through the difficulties they experience during their lives in this evil world. Persecution and suffering. We have to know this. They are unavoidable for those who want to follow Jesus. If you're alive in this world, you are not immune 
from suffering. You're not immune from pain. You're not immune from persecution. In fact, Jesus himself said, since they, talking about those who don't believe in him, since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. And so these Thessalonians, their suffering was really the fulfillment of what Jesus had prophesied about those who would follow him. And, and if they were not true believers, this is how he's trying to help them see that even their suffering is a source of, of comfort for them, is a source of, of assurance, because if they were not true believers, why would the world be persecuting them? If, if they were still children of, children of the darkness, why would children of the darkness be, be attacking them? But the Holy Spirit lives in them, and that, that light is hated by the darkness. And so he's saying the very fact that you are being persecuted is itself evidence that you are followers of Christ. Because Jesus said, if you have faith in him, if you follow him, you're going to suffer these things. So, so, so in a way, Paul is just simply reassuring them that their suffering has an eternal purpose. And that's what we have to hold on to when we're dealing with suffering, when we're dealing, whether it's, whether it's just plain suffering because we live in a broken, sinful world, or if it's be suffering because of persecution, or whatever it is, we have to know that our suffering has an eternal purpose. And it's not that God wants that, it's that He will use that to, to fulfill an eternal purpose in you. And what is His eternal purpose in you? to make you like Christ so that he will be glorified. See, God could have stopped the persecution in Thessalonica, couldn't he? I mean, sure. I mean, I mean one, I mean, all he has to do is just, just speak the word and all the persecutors are dead, right? Persecution's done. He could stop, could have stopped it. But he chose to use it instead as a tool in their preparation for the glory that was to come. In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis, one of the great Christian thinkers, he wrote this, and, I, and I, you may have heard this quote. It's very powerful. He wrote this. And by the way, if you know anything about his life, if you read about his life, he suffered greatly. Uh, his wife uh, suffered for a long period of time and eventually passed away. He, he, he wrote about this is the, the problem of pain is a response to the death of his wife. But this is what he wrote. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And clearly God was using his megaphone to get the attention of the Thessalonian Christians and their pain was proving their legitimacy as, as God's people. By their faithful endurance, they were demonstrating their worthiness to be citizens of God's kingdom. Here's the thing. God does have purpose in our pain. And I'm not saying he causes it. That's not what I'm saying. Although sometimes he does if it's discipline, you know. I, I Listen, I mean, when I was raising my kids, there are times when I cause their pain. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and, and if you don't do that as a parent, you're not a very good parent, right? And, and, but, so... In, but but I didn't I wasn't it wasn't happening because I wanted to see them in pain. It's because I knew that I had to help train them and discipline them. So uh, 
but 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 sometimes sometimes God brings pain into our lives as a means of discipline. Other times he allows it because there's something else he wants to accomplish, but he has an earthly purpose for your pain. Uh, number one, God uses pain to draw us into a more intimate union with him. I have a, 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 a good friend, a lady, she's, she was in the church in Georgetown that she talked about a time when she was suffering. She went through breast cancer and she talked about all the, the difficulty, the pain, going through all the treatment and the chemotherapy and all these things. And times when she was just so sick, sick she could hardly stand it. And, and, um, and, and, and she talked about, she got to the lowest point and, and she just said in her mind, she just said, I just crawled up in the, in the Lord's lap and I just sat there. And she, she said this, something along these lines. She said to me one day, she said, I never ever want to go through that again. But I learned intimacy with Jesus that I would never have learned any other way. Our, our, our natural inclination will always be to allow the lesser, though not always unimportant things in life to crowd out the more important things. Uh, one way somebody said, uh, often we sacrifice the important to the urgent. Not everything urgent is important, right? But, but uh, on top of the list of important things is our daily walk with God. Nothing in life should be more important than that. Here's the thing. Uh, God is a jealous God. Now we use that word jealous and we think that's weird. Sounds wrong because we're told not to be jealous. Sometimes we get confused between jealousy and envy. They're, not, they're similar, but they're not the same. Envy is when I want something that you have. Jealous is when I want to keep something that I have. Right? So a jealous husband is, is, is somebody who's wanting to keep his wife that belongs to him. He's not envious. See the difference? But if, I, but if that man wants his neighbor's wife, now he's envious. He's envying his... So there's a difference there. There's a slight difference. God is a jealous God. What does that mean? But it's a righteous jealousy. It's saying, you're mine. I'm not going to share you with anybody else. That's the whole idea behind it. He is not content to, to play second string on your, on your team, and he's not content to play second fiddle in your band. Isaiah says in Isaiah 44, 6, this is what the Lord says. Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. And God yearns jealously for your friendship and, and thus refuses to allow lesser gods, little g, lesser gods to take his place. He, he loves you too passionately to allow you just to walk away and replace him with other things in this world. He will pursue you. He will do what, what, uh, use whatever means necessary to bring you back to him. And the tool that, that he uses oftentimes is pain and suffering and dealing with this. That's the discipline of God. The, the, the process of preparing you uh, for heaven begins at the moment you're saved and it lasts until you finally see Jesus. And he, he may, he may uh, choose to use pain, persecution, or both. But in, when we're, we begin to wander, God will always do whatever He has to do. He will always work to crowd you back to Him. Some, and that's what the pain is. It's like, uh, you know, uh, has anybody ever, here ever been shocked by a cattle prod? I haven't. I don't ever want to be. I knew, of course, Ed has been. <laughs> he, he's gone through all these kind of things. 
And this is what, what he's talking about. It's like when that cow begins to, to stray from where it needs to be, the, 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 the herder, the, the cowboy, or whoever it is, the owner of the cow uses that cattle prod to get them back where they need to be. And that's the idea behind that, that God will crowd you back to Him. That when you start wandering, now you can ignore that. You can ignore that. And over time, if you keep ignoring it, pretty soon you, you, you develop a callus where the shock goes and now you don't even feel it anymore. That's, that's a hardened heart. That's a whole different lesson. But here's the second thing about, about it. God uses pain to make us more like Jesus. The, 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 uh, the fall of man, Adam and Eve, the first sin that corrupted and distorted the image of God in us. Human beings are created in the image of God. And Jesus came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, and that is to restore fully that broken image. I'm not there yet. Not Neither are you. One day, what does the Bible say? One day when Christ comes, when I see Him, I will be like Him because I will see Him as He is. What, is. what does that mean? It means that He's going to fully restore the image of God in me. Paul, Paul describes what happens when we put our faith in Christ. Ephesians 2, 22-24. You took off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, you're being renewed in the spirit of your minds. You put on that the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. From the moment of your conversion, God begins the work of shaping and pruning you to be more and more like Jesus, to create the image of God, to restore the image of God in you. And because God is passionate about you, uh, about you reflecting the image of Jesus, you can be absolutely confident that he will take the necessary measures to remove anything that distorts his image. And then when his hands meet your resistance, because what he does, he says, I'm going to take this out of your life. I don't want you to have this because it's distorting the image, my image in you. And then what we do so often as human beings are like, but I like this. So we resist. And when we resist, uh, the, then, then that's the moment we can anticipate that, that discipline will fall, follow. And he will use whatever tool is necessary to chisel away those broken and distorted parts of our lives to make us more like Jesus. And that is really, you know, you, you, I can, the best way I can describe it is like chiseling away something or taking sandpaper. Anybody who ever had God take spiritual sandpaper to your life? Yeah. Not always pleasant, but it's what needs to happen. And, and when I walk through that, I look at that and say, okay, this is not fun. But you know what? There's a glory waiting for me that's so much better. So I'm going to hang on. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep moving forward. The, the keys, I need to close. The keys to surviving persecution and trials are endurance and faithfulness. Endurance and faithfulness. That means you say, I'm not going to give up. I'm, I'm not going to just sit back and passively wait. I'm going to keep moving forward. I'm going to be faithful with everything that I can be. Now, I know I'm going to fail at that sometimes, but I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to keep moving. I'm going to continue pursuing God. I'm going to do what I have to do. 
And, and when we are faced with crushing troubles, we can trust that God is using our trials for our good and for His glory. When I'm in pain, I can, I can keep moving forward because I know that even though I can't see it, even though I can't possibly understand it, and maybe I never will in this lifetime, I know God's going to use this to, to somehow bring about good in my life. And the ultimate good is He's going to make me like Jesus. Knowing that God is fair and just will develop patience because we know that He's not forgotten us and we know He is a good God and He wants good things for my life. And in His perfect timing, God will relieve our suffering and He will punish those that persecute us. Judgment day is coming. Now, we don't want that to happen to anybody. We want them to come to repentance. But if they choose or we, we won't just have to say they, we'll say us. If we refuse to, to accept Him, we will face judgment and, and punishment will follow. The question is for us, especially when you, when you find yourselves in the midst of trial, pain, persecution, suffering, whatever it is, the question is very simply this, can you trust God even in the midst of your suffering? That's the question. And when we answer that, we say, yes, I trust Him. Maybe like Job. There are a lot of things Job said wrong, but there's some really powerful things he said as well. One of them he said, and it was in, in the reading from earlier today. I think it was today. It might have been yesterday, but I think it was today. Job said, though he slay me, yet will I serve him. That's the kind of faith where we say, even if I don't understand it, even if I have to lose everything like Job did, I will not let go of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you, God. I don't thank you for suffering, but I thank you, God, that you don't waste suffering. That when we go through pain, when we go through hardship, that you don't just let it happen and say, oh, well, just deal with it. But God, you say, okay, I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that to shape you. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to cause it all to work together to make you more like Christ. And to, I'm going to cause it all work together for your good and for the glory of God. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to really get a hold of that. And I know it's really hard we're in the middle of, when we're in the middle of suffering to, to grab that. And, but Lord, I pray that that truth would give us hope and endurance, uh, Lord God, to be able to persevere in the face of anything that we may, may deal with in this life. God, help us to remember that you never waste a hurt, that no matter what happens, you're at work, you're shaping us. And Lord, I pray that those hard times would draw us into greater intimacy with you, that you would use those times to shape us and make us more like Christ. And that, Lord, ultimately, above everything else, that your name would be glorified in our lives. Let the world see who you are, even in our suffering, God. We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.